electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Brian, thank you so much. I'm Wilfred Frost in for Kelly Evans today. Here is what is ahead. Tech surging again. The Nasdaq topping 11,000 with Fang names, Tesla and semis leading the sector to dizzying new heights. Apple's in there as well. Will an earnings season without guidance and the rising number of COVID cases, though, bring the market's euphoria back down to earth? We'll discuss during the show. Plus, more signs that the reopening is slowing down. Details on what Carnival is doing with its fleet and how Disney's dialing back its theme parks reopenings starting this week. And all this uh, trading uh, of stocks during the pandemic isn't just because we're stuck at home and we've got no sports to watch. The biggest reason, according to a new study, that's coming up. But we begin with the broader markets right near the session highs. Bob Bassani's got a summary of today's action for us. And, Wilf, we may be about to break out. I just want to show you what's going on with the S&P 500. In fact, we have all 11 sectors in the S&P 500 up today. That's fairly unusual. Three to two advancing to declining stocks. But I want to concentrate on that uh, S&P 500. 32.32 was the previous high for this particular cycle that we saw June 8th. And if we break out above 32.32, close above that, we'll be at the highest level since early February when things started falling apart. So just pay attention to that level. Rarely do technicals matter in this kind of market. I think people watch and see if we can get over that 32.32 level. Uh, Tech is powering things forward again, of course, uh, those new highs. But rarely do you get all the FANG names, including Microsoft, at new highs today. And that's what's going on here. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix... Uh, all alphabet also at 52-week high. Most cases, historic highs here. Semiconductors, as Wolf mentioned, at uh, new highs. We've got a big semiconductor deal. And many of the stay-at-home stocks, Walmart and Lowe's, for example, Costco, even Clorox, at 52-week highs. As Wolf mentioned, we're entering earnings season, and this is going to be a wild one for a couple of reasons. The principal reason is 40% of the companies haven't provided any guidance, and perhaps alarmingly, they're not so far declining to provide any guidance as we go into the third quarter. Just in the last couple of weeks, we've had some very early reporters, General Mills, Macy's, Copri, Constellation Brands, FedEx a week and a half ago. And this morning, Pepsi came in with numbers that were a little better than expectations. But they too, Pepsi this morning said, sorry, things are too uncertain for us to make a decision and provide any kind of guidance for you. So what's happened is without analy- without company guidance, the analysts are kind of adrift here. They're all over the maps. The dispersion between the high and low analyst estimates has been historic because the analysts can't figure out what to do without some kind of company guidance here. So we've seen extended closures, of course, potentially, and that's a real threat to the earnings picture here. So, Wilf, of course, we start tomorrow with J.P. Morgan, as you know, and uh, I'm I'm expecting a lot of very divergent commentary, some a a cautious optimism, but a lot of people I think are going to continue. No guidance. Yeah, Bob, it's going to be fascinating. We look forward to those uh, banks reporting uh, tomorrow, 6.45 a.m. or so is when J.P. Morgan thinks kicks things off. Uh, Bob, thank you. Shares of Pfizer and BioNTech uh, moving higher on news that two of their jointly developed vaccine candidates have been fast-tracked by the FDA. Meg Terrell joins me uh, live with the very latest on that. Hey, Meg. 
Hey, well, so fast track designation is really just a marker that the FDA has decided this is a product or two potential products that are worth expediting through the review process. This is two of four of Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine candidates for COVID-19. And really, this should not be a surprise to anybody. Of course, a coronavirus vaccine, especially one that's shown promising phase one results as this one has, would be marked for a fast track review by the FDA. So the share reaction is a little bit puzzling to folks who know what this designation means, which really is just saying that this is an important product to get through quickly. Uh, But it is a reminder that this is on track. Pfizer saying that they plan to start a late stage 30,000 participant clinical trial by the end of this month, uh, which would put them really neck and neck with Moderna and potentially set them up, if all goes well, to apply for the initial regulatory approval this fall. Uh, Moderna also has that fast track designation. uh, And so all of them, of course, have been marked to move very quickly through this process, Wilf. And Meg, what are the latest numbers uh, that we've got over the weekend and today in terms of uh, the spikes in cases in, in certain areas? These numbers in the U.S. just continue to be staggering. We're up near 60,000 cases every day being reported in the United States. Record numbers. The test positive rate um, has also been increasing from a few months ago, showing that we do have more infection. We are not just testing more. Several states reporting records. Of course, Florida, the most notable, more than 15,000 new cases in Florida reported yesterday and more than 12,000 reported from that state today. You can see tech Texas and California there, also among the states reporting the most. Evercore ISI points out that 85% of the U.S. population lives in states seeing growth in cases, and 69% live in states seeing growth in hospitalizations. So this is a situation that's bad and getting worse, Wilf. Meg, as always, thanks very much for that. Uh, So how should investors prepare for an earnings season without guidance while the country continues to face a COVID uh, case spike? Uh, For more, I'm joined by Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer of Commonwealth Financial Network, and Gina Sanchez, CEO of Chantico Global and a CBC contributor. A very good uh, afternoon to you both. Uh, Gina, I'll I'll start with you. I mean, clearly markets are able to shrug off possibly very big declines in earnings and spikes in cases. Can you find a legitimate justification for that? I think the market is really pinning their, uh, pinning this on hope. Hope that by the time we get uh, to uh, the fall that we will have some kind of control over this in some form, whether it's con- some you know, effective convalescent therapy um, and or vaccine. And I'm not sure that that is necessarily possible. I know that there are a lot of drugs being fast-tracked, but if you look historically, vaccines take a long time to develop, even given the amount of resources and effort that we're putting into this. And so the markets are priced um, as if things will work out in the end um, and are not recognizing the fact that short-term stimulus is starting to wear off. PPP is now coming to its end. Uh, We're starting to see... Um, you know, I think that, that the, the, the fall in unemployment claims um, will be met with another rise later in the summer. Um, and if we don't get this under control, even though we may not lock down, we certainly will see continued sluggishness in the economy. And that's just not priced in right now. Brad, uh, as we enter earnings season, uh, particularly for, for the, the stocks that are leading the market, those uh, tech stocks, Is there a risk that their momentum gets derailed as people are reminded of what valuation multiple they are on? Or or is it uh, right to expect that momentum can continue to drive those stocks higher? We're actually seeing momentum and hope. 
as Gina said, I mean, right now there's the hope and the expectation that everything's going to be okay. If you look at the estimates for earnings next year, basically we're going to be back to 2019, which says that everything is going to be fine. And right now, although we're on track, we're starting to see the data soften. So I think certainly when some reality gets injected back into the market, even for the best companies, the prices might not be worth it. Gina, what about for the underperforming value stocks? Could earnings, in fact, be a, a bit of a spark for them to recover? You know, that's been the, the biggest challenge of this entire uh, experience. This market experience is focused primarily on growth stocks, which normally isn't the case. But the reality is, is there's a reason for that. What has been sort of sailing us through and keeping the economy going in some way have been technology names, communications names. Um, that has been what has kept uh, the part of the economy that is continuing to operate operating. And so I don't think that these are necessarily overly expensive here. And I think it will be very challenging for um, some parts of the value universe, like financials, um, energy, that are just that are dependent on, for example, a steeper yield curve or more demand. Uh, that those stories aren't there yet. That's not to say that they aren't terribly undervalued relative to their own history. Um, but but right now, what is probably going to get us through is, strangely enough, going to be um, the more overvalued names. Brad, uh, do you think it's worth owning U.S. bank stocks into earnings tomorrow? I would wait until after earnings because we don't know what's going to happen. But when you look at the financials, there's a tremendous amount of bad news baked in. And I look at the sentiment and I look at the fact that, you know, large parts of the economy are still operating and will stop, still operate regardless. I think there may be an opportunity there longer term. Gina, if we do get to the point when a Tesla or a Netflix or an Apple rolls over and this uh, extraordinary outperformance uh, stops, does that drag the entire market down or, or will it be stock specific? Well, I think that actually could actually drag the, the entire market down just because those those stocks in that segment uh, of the economy has become such a large component of the S&P right now that if you see a, a breakdown in momentum, you will see sales in ETFs, not in individual stocks. And those ETFs will sell everything indiscriminately. And that has been one of the challenges of this market. Um, is that, you know, people go into individual names when they're optimistic, but they tend to sell the entire market when they're pessimistic. So I think the entire market could take the hit. Brad and Gina, thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Still to come, uh, they are some of the most disliked stocks on Wall Street, but my next guest says they shouldn't be. The names and what makes them a good investment coming next, plus the top reason why people started trading more during the pandemic. And it's not because of more time at home. We've got the results of a new study and a new CNBC investigation. I certainly didn't sign a document and say it's okay to steal from me. This former New Hampshire governor says Merrill Lynch cost him more than $100 million. The company says he should have known better. CNBC's investigation, Trading on Trust, coming up. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. We're holding near session highs, by the way, up 480 points on the Dow. That's 1.8%. S&P 500 and Nasdaq both up 1.3%. Now, some of the most popular stocks on Wall Street are also the most expensive ones. Uh, But let's have a look at three uh, stocks that have uh, significantly... Firstly, sorry, some of those that have outperformed. First up, Amazon. Uh, It's on a whopping 147 times forward earnings. The $3,300 stock has jumped 80% this year. Chipotle, also another expensive a uh, member of the four-figure club. It's trading uh, at a premium, forward-looking uh, PE at 109. And last but certainly not least, Zoom may be among the most expensive uh, stocks uh, in the stay-at-home bracket. It's up uh, uh, 195 times PE. My next guest, however, argues that it may be time to bet on some underdogs in highlights, some bargain names that may be flying under the radar. Let's bring in Alan Root, senior writer at Barron's. Uh, Alan, good to see you. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Will. Thanks for having me. Um, great backdrop as well uh, in, a, in a nice, uh, it looks like a sports field behind you or something. Anyway, uh, let's get to some of these, uh, these picks. Uh, first up, you've gone for, for Sally Beauty Holdings. Uh, tell, us, tell us why you think it's a good time to buy that uh, recent underperformer. So, uh, yeah, this is my uh, work from home setup these days. The, <laughs> the Sally Beauty, um, you know, what we did is we started looking for some of the most hated stocks. You know, we all know the performance, like you just mentioned, the Amazon, some of the most popular stocks. So we said, well, let's sift through some of the most hated. Uh, and, and we ended up with three names. One of them was Sally Beauty. And it is a pro distributor, a, a salon uh, products uh, distributor to the pros, also has about 5,000 outlets. Uh, you know, so there's this overhang with uh, COVID, of course. A lot of salons were closed. Also, you know, some concern over Amazon. But when we dug in, we thought, you know, it's a pretty consistent free cash flow generator. And with a lot of these ugly companies that we called, um, you know, if anything goes right, uh, you know, things can uh, improve. And with a single digit P.E. ratio, uh, that was one of the ones we liked. We thought the Amazon stuff was a little overstated and some things could go well for the company. How tied is this to the reopening theme, though? If we, if we see more reversals, is it uh, is it in trouble? Uh, definitely partly tied to reopening. However, one of the reasons that the stock has underperformed was really this fear that Amazon was going to disrupt uh, the the beauty distribution and re- environment, even in the pro sector. Uh, so these are people that are mixing their own color and doing your hair. Um, and what we found out is that really isn't the case. The pros still like Sally Beauty, uh, don't like necessarily um, uh, shopping for their color on Amazon.com. Uh, you know, so they had... Uh, uh, so Sally, you know, it's partly a realization that, you know, the earnings are a little and cash flow especially are a little more stable uh, than people expect. So opening definitely a catalyst, but some decent underlying trends uh, that could push the stock forward. You've got a, in your top three, you've got another retailer in there as well. Tell us which one. Yeah, Michaels. I am a little bit obsessed with finding retailers that uh, are somewhat insulated from the Amazon effect. Uh, Michael's qualifies, Sally Beauty qualifies. The thing about both of those is there is a level of interaction required that you can't always get online. And in the case of Michael's, they're crafting, obviously, and uh, they just hired a new CEO uh, from Walmart who is involved in merchandising. And, you know, he wants to focus on, um, you know, experiential type uh, things and being able to, uh, you know, help consumers with whatever sort of crafting or projects they have. 
So both of those retail picks are this idea of there is something that's a little bit hard to disintermediate combined with low valuation, a history of decent free cash flow. Those were two of the uh, beaten up stocks that I like. And the last one uh, we're going for or you've gone for is, is a cloud computing uh, name, but uh, hasn't performed well, surprisingly. No. And, you know, it's funny when you're looking through uh, the bad uh, or the ugly stocks, as I name them, um, you know, and you talk to people, it's not really difficult to get the bear case on any of these. Oftentimes, when you're looking for investments, you're wondering if you're going to look through rose colored glasses. In the case of Blackbaud, they do a lot of the software for nonprofits. There's two problems Salesforce.com is getting into their space, and a lot of museums and, 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 and nonprofit organizations are struggling in a COVID 19 world. So there's not a lot going well. However, um, they still have high market share. Perhaps there's an opportunity for an activist. It trades at a steep, steep discount to other software providers. Uh, so I thought, you know, it, it, how bad can it be? And, and you know, this isn't, you know, a screen for the most beaten up stocks aren't necessarily, you know, the be all and end all of an investment thesis. But, you know, I like to say good things can happen to cheap stocks. Alan Root, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So to come, a closer look at how Canada is handling the pandemic, uh, what's gone well and what hasn't, uh, and what the U.S. may be able to take away from it. Uh, Plus, Hong Kong Disneyland set to close again following a spike in coronavirus cases. This as Disney World just reopened its doors over the weekend in Florida. Is it headed for the same fate? We've got the latest on that. And a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange, back in two minutes. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Uh, Stocks higher across the board. In fact, we're at session highs as we speak. The Dow's up 524 points, now over 2%. Uh, S&P and Nasdaq both up around 1.5%. The Nasdaq set another intraday high. It's also on pace to close at a fresh record close. Here are some of the uh, biggest individual movers. Shares of Moderna climbing higher today after the Nasdaq announced uh, it would add the name to its Nasdaq 100 index a week from today. Jeffrey's also initiated coverage of the stock with a buy rating. Uh, Moderna, as you can see, is up uh, some 20% or so uh, today. Shares of Quest Diagnostics higher on better than expected revenue in the second quarter. Growing demand for COVID-19 tests, one of the reasons uh, for that. And that stock, as you can see, up 5.5%. And finally, let's have a look at Tesla hitting yet another intraday high today. Uh, It was up about 15%. Uh, At the height of the session, it's still up another 10%, uh, paired back a little bit, 600% uh, in one year. This uh, move comes despite the company saying 
It was cutting the price of its Model Y crossover by $3,000. It's the second significant price cut to Tesla vehicles in the last six weeks. The stock is up 600%, as I just said, over the last year. Uh, time now for ACNBC News Update. Sue Herrera's got it for us. Hi, Sue. Hello, Wilf. Good to see you. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo says people traveling on a plane from states on New York's quarantine list will now need to disclose where they will be staying, uh, staying rather, so authorities can enforce the mandatory two-week quarantine period. Cuomo stressing that New York must stay diligent to avoid a resurgence. Fool me once. We can't be in a situation where we have people coming from other states in the country bringing the virus again. Uh, it is that simple. Again, Port Authority will do the enforcement in downstate New York. The other airports will do it in upstate New York. George Soros Open Society Foundation is setting aside $220 million to promote racial justice. The money will be distributed over a five-year period to a wide range of organizations focusing on issues like inequality, police reform, and voting access. You can get more on that story going to cnbc.com. You are up to date. That's the news update. Wilf, I'll send it back to you. Sue, thank you very much. Uh, see you later in the closing bell, I'm sure. Coming up, Disney reopens one park this weekend and announces the closure of another today. According to PepsiCo, salty snacks are the pandemic winners and WeWork says it's on the path to profitability, believe it or not. All that and more in today's Rapid Fire. That's next. back. Dow's up 2%. Uh, CNBC.com today beginning a new series looking at how some other countries are dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. First up, our neighbor to the north. Uh, and as you can see from the curve, new cases there have been falling since early April. They hit a new low this past weekend with just 198 cases reported on Sunday. CNBC.com technology and health reporter Chrissy Farr joins us now to talk about some of uh, the things that have set Canada apart from the United States and perhaps some lessons that could be uh, learned. Chrissy, a very good afternoon to you. Uh, thanks for joining us. What, what's the sort of headline takeaway uh, on Canada in terms of how bad it got initially uh, and where they are now relative to that? Was it a national crisis or a regional crisis for them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Canada has had a very different response from, from the U.S., its, it's neighbor. Um, really, 90% of the cases focused on just a few provinces, and that was Ontario and Quebec. They had an amazing COVID-19 response in British Columbia, um, and it really could have gone very badly there, um, given that some of the first cases were there. But they had such a strong public health leadership, very consistent messaging from Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's now become a bit of a cult hero in Canada. People just love her. She's she's very empathetic, um, has been you know, encouraging people to follow the public health guidelines, um, visibly sometimes emotional uh, when she talks about COVID-19 and, and is always reminding Canadians to be kind to each other, to support each other through the crisis. So it's just an extremely different kind of leadership that we're seeing from Canada. And they've definitely had results that are very different from ours, far fewer deaths and, and just far fewer COVID-19 cases overall. Did the uh, national aspect to some of, their, uh, some of their spending make a difference, whether that was actually on the healthcare side or on the economic side in terms of uh, preventing uh, unemployment, uh, perhaps leading from, to, to as big a pullback in the economy? 
Absolutely. And they have been praised for their economic relief packages. It hasn't been entirely perfect. There have been delays, just like in the U.S., with receiving any kind of assistance. But overall, it's been a fairly robust program in terms of the economic side. And then they they do have more of a healthcare system than we do. It's still kind of a combination of of public and and private. Um, And from that front, I, I just heard consistently through this this reporting um, that they've just really seen a lot of very kind of brave providers. Um, lots of uh, there were initially some concerns about protective equipment, but now that seems to have been solved. Um, they've really gotten their domestic engine running when it comes to manufacturing. So they've done a very good job there as well. Um, the one big failure, though, has been the long-term care facilities. And that that is a system that people have been saying for years needs more funding, needs more staffing. And some of the worst outbreaks happen there and, and really hit their vulnerable elderly population. So I think that's something that Canada will have to look at in the long run. Chrissy Farr, thanks so much for that. And uh, a great new series uh, which we'll be rolling out on CNBC.com uh, in the coming days uh, and week, the first installment to uh, Canada uh, online now. Uh, Let's uh, catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's uh, time uh, for Rapid Fire. Uh, Here with their take are Leslie Picker, Robert Frank and Seema Modi. A very good afternoon to you all. Great to see you. I think this is my first ever Rapid Fire. Uh, First topic, a dilemma for Disney. The company announcing it will close its Hong Kong theme park on Wednesday, July 15, amid a spike in new coronavirus cases. This comes as Disney World in Orlando, Florida, just reopened over the weekend. Our own Julia Borston joins us now with the latest uh, details on this uh, particular Disney part of the story. Julia, what can you tell us? Well, Wolf, Disney announced that it's being required by the Hong Kong government and health authorities to temporarily close Hong Kong Disney, Disneyland on July 15th. The resort's hotels will remain open with adjusted levels of services. No word on when they'll be able to reopen that park again. Now, this comes after Disney World started its phase reopening this past weekend, welcoming thousands of guests. Now, they gave us no word on whether they'll reclose that park if Florida cases continue to spike. But Disney tells me they can adjust capacity numbers in order to continue to operate in this new world. And Goldman Sachs initiated coverage of Disney with a buy rating and $137 price target on the stock, saying it expects the media giants, parks and studios to fully recover after COVID and that synergies with Disney's direct-to-consumer streaming business are underappreciated. Well, Julia, thank you very much. I mean, Robert, it's such an interesting snapshot, the fact that uh, this is all taking place in Florida, which is a a state that's continuing to see cases uh, rise and spike. And yet we're kind of reopening regardless. In one sense, it's quite encouraging. And it's perhaps what the stock market is is reacting to uh, in, in general, that we can just plow on. It is encouraging, and I think if anyone can do it right, it is Disney. I mean, they just have incredible protocols there, and they are a model in a way for the rest of Florida to perhaps follow some of those protocols and get those numbers down. But it reminds us how important theme parks are to Disney. You know, we we think of it as a content company, but 37% of its revenues come from theme parks, and that is why there is such this imperative at Disney to open perhaps regardless of what's going on in the context of cases in Florida compared to Hong Kong. Yeah, the Hong Kong one shutting down, a reminder of uh, how, uh, how carefully they have to play. Seema, I guess a lot of companies that you follow so closely will be watching whether Disney can do this well uh, with very, 
very close attention. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of speaks to this balancing act that entertainment and hospitality firms are really trying to conquer, which is reopening uh, their hotels, their properties, but at the same time, prioritizing safety. There was one analyst that called the Disney reopening, Wilf, the ultimate uh, economic bellwether, because it tells you a lot about a consumer's willingness to not only spend money on a vacation, uh, wherever they are around the world, but also their willingness to be in close proximity with other people. Leslie, I guess uh, many of these most effective hospitality-type uh, stocks, and Disney has a lot of other parts of the business too, of course, uh, have been hit much, much harder uh, than Disney's stock has. Of course, mm-hmm. it's off its highs of, of 150, but uh, well off its lows uh, of 80 uh, as well. And I guess the hedge funds out there aren't sort of aggressively trying to short this one or play it as a, as a, a bust or bounce back type stock. Maybe not Disney per se, but there's definitely a basket of companies that the hedge funds are looking at that uh, they are correlated with uh, reopening trends and and pulling back on those trends. Uh, Cruise ships, for one, is uh, definitely in those in that bucket. Um, And so I think you're right. Disney is a little bit more diversified. So it's something that if they were shorting it, they'd be shorting it probably more based on valuation than anything. Um, And the Goldman Sachs note. Highlighting those synergies is something I think that hedge funds are looking at with this one, too. But you're right. We're seeing a very high beta on especially entertainment and hospitality stocks that are so directly tied to whether or not these economies can reopen. I mean, Julia, Disney's up again today, half a percent or so, so behind the rest of the market, but, but shrugging off that headline on the Hong Kong Park. Yeah, look, I think that the stocks are moving higher on that Goldman Sachs note. And the idea, that confidence that Disney's studio and its theme parks do have the potential to fully recover. I mean, there are so many questions still about the theatrical movie going business. And we're waiting for theaters to open, waiting to see if Disney will have to delay its release of Mulan yet again. But that Goldman note had a lot of optimism sort of looking at the long term potential of this company. Julia Borson, thanks so much uh, for joining us uh, on that story. By the way, Netflix, uh, Disney's rival in a different subsector, reports on Thursday and is up 75% year-to-date, one to watch this week for sure. Next uh, topic, PepsiCo shares higher after topping estimates. The company saw a big bump in sales for its Frito-Lay business. The snack sales surge helped offset a decline in its core beverages business. PepsiCo CFO Hugh Johnston was on Squawkbox uh, earlier today, talked about how the reopening of the economy will impact the company. The snacks and foods business very much benefiting from people staying and eating at home. Beverage business doing less well. As mobility increased toward the end of the quarter, you saw the beverage business start to come on more strongly and, and snacks sustaining well. So I, we kind of feel like we're, we're about a perfect hedge in terms of we benefit from, from lockdown. We benefit from, from people becoming more mobile again. A really interesting uh, point there, I thought, uh, in terms of uh, their parts of the business being diametrically opposed. By the way, while PepsiCo also reported a $400 million hit from virus-related costs, Johnson noted the financial impact should diminish uh, moving forward. Uh, Seema, the other kind of standout from, from that interview, I thought, this morning in the numbers was China sales up 30 percent, Germany sales up 18 percent, and, and clearly there a correlation handle the virus well, uh, and you'll see consumers come back more meaningfully. Yeah, another gauge of uh, consumers willing to spend more money, whether it be on snacks or or cruises or whether it be a a, a ticket to a Disney park. But I think the the interesting part about snacks, we've been sort of debating some of the lasting impacts of COVID and whether, you know, snacks will be sort of here to stay. I can certainly attest to that on days when I'm working from home. (laughs) Snacking is certainly a big part of my uh, work and life balance. But perhaps this is, in fact, a, a bullish call on Peloton, if that's the case. Well, Russ will be working out. 
Yeah, well, that's true. Particularly the salty snacks, I think they were saying, were highest up on the list. Leslie, still no guidance, uh, which speaks to a, a difficult theme as we enter all of earnings season of, of how people are meant to, to really value these stocks. Exactly. And they talk about, you know, the unpredictability and the volatility in their sales, especially as you see different pockets of the economies opening up, different parts closing down and how that impacts their business. It's impossible for them uh, to really predict the future for for their business. And and what I think to Seema's point is interesting is just the stickiness of this snacks build, uh, the snacks division and whether, uh, you know, once these economies do start opening back up again, do people continue to eat Fritos? Um, you know, if, and if you're stressed drinking during a pandemic, you know, you're, you're probably not opting for Pepsi. You're probably opting for the wine uh, instead in your fridge. Yeah, but then you need a Pepsi, At least that's been my case. A Pepsi in the morning to, to get you going again. The caffeine plus sugar, I always exactly, think, Exactly, the works. caffeine. Better even still than, That's than coffee That's the perfect does. hedge he referred to. Ro- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Robert, um, where do you stand on this one? Interesting, in terms of snacks, we're all saying it's because we're, we're being greedy, but Quaker was very strong for them. I guess Quaker's healthy stuff. I'm, I'm not actually sure, but uh, up 23%. Yeah, Quaker... Quaker up 23%. And that's what was interesting, Hugh Johnson's conversation with Sarah this morning, where he was saying, yes, we're indulging, we're eating all the Lay's and the chips and all the unhealthy carbs, but we're also eating healthy. And I think you could say that Quaker Oats is on the healthy side. And it's interesting when you compare Coke and Pepsi. And my first job at the Wall Street Journal more than 25 years ago was covering these two companies. And this argument, the internal existential argument about whether it's better to have a basket of food and beverage or just pure play beverage. And this pandemic has been better for Pepsi because it has the food side mm-hmm. and there is this snacking stay at home element. Uh, next uh, story on the list, uh, embattled office based provider WeWork says it's on track to reach profitability and positive cash flow sometime next year. That's a year ahead of schedule. Uh, Executive Chairman Marcelo Clore uh, told the Financial Times it's seeing strong demand for its flexible workspaces amid the pandemic, including new lease agreements with giants like MasterCard, Microsoft and Citigroup. Its valuation has fallen from nearly $50 billion in early 2019 to less than $3 billion uh, in March. Uh, Robert, I'll come to you first on this one. I mean, uh, we can come. It's not a full release from them, but uh, certainly the tone of it was, was positive, what we learned from the interview in the Financial Times. Uh, but, but you could see how, in general, office space is going to be under pressure with the work from home trend, but that within office uh, as a business, if people are downsizing and getting rid of their full building, that, that the subsector of shared spaces could benefit. Yeah. Look, on the one hand, I was surprised they're saying cash flow positive by 2021 because this is a company that had very long term leases that they had taken at the peak of the market at very expensive rates. Um, And they had a lot of customers, their own clients that presumably weren't paying because they weren't coming to work. In fact, the fact that they're going to be cash flow positive is is surprising and strong and a sign of just how small they went from 14,000 workers to about 5,600. So this is a much smaller company. But, but there will be the, the question of, can you grow? It's not just, can you shrink to profitability in 2021, but what is the growth plan? And that beyond the occasional office that may be sort of expanding because they need more space, I just don't know what that proposition proposition is right now. Well, they've certainly cut costs in the meantime, workforce from 14,000 down to 5,600. I think that was the first time we got specific numbers on that. Leslie, the other really crazy situation we have here, uh, Clore, COO at SoftBank and chairman of WeWork, and the two are in litigation 
against each other uh, in terms of SoftBank trying to back out some of the terms of its rescue package kind of reminded me that, that right. there was that level of overlap in terms of the management. Still unclear how that gets settled. And of course, Adam Newman is the, the person that will be watching that most interested. Absolutely, because that's what determines, you know, helps determine his pay package. Um, and I think what's interesting with regard to WeWork and its, its you know, plight and its, uh, its ability to become cash flow positive, to Robert's point, is this idea of how it is actually trying to capitalize in this era of COVID. Um, that companies have decided that they're not opening their doors, but they're letting their employees go into WeWork. And, um, you know, if they need to and having, you know, in-person face-to-face meetings there. My question, and one thing I was trying to look into before before we had this chat, is whether or not companies are still liable if their employees get sick at a WeWork. Whose liability is it mm-hmm. if there is some sort of contagion that takes place um, at a WeWork versus if you're in, they mentioned, you know, Citigroup is one of the, the companies that's been doing this. Um, you know, if you're a Citigroup, does that kind of pass on the liability for your employees getting sick? I, I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, it'll be an interesting deciding factor, I'm sure, long term for them if they have uh, later costs. But uh, a, a rare positive update on WeWork. Finally, shares of Carnival uh, mm-hmm. lower after announcing plans to cut its fleet by 13 ships, about 9% of its total capacity. The cruise line said it's part of a reorganization effort as it continues to burn cash with U.S. sailings suspended amid the coronavirus pandemic. However, the company says it does expect a bounce back in consumer demand for next year. The CDC's no-sale order expires later this month, though most cruise lines have paused sailings uh, through until about September here. In the U.S., I mean, Seema, it's down a bit today. It was up uh, sharply on Friday. Uh, the, the note arguing that they're a long-term winner. It's hard for us to, to look at that uh, yet, but you can read the note and see it's, it's all about cost-cutting, shrinking, um, shrinking the fleet, and they'll be have. In a, in a more profitable position the other side. Yeah, and with Carnival being the largest of the three publicly traded cruise lines, it's burning around $650 million uh, of cash every month. So the pressure is really building on Carnival to find different ways to cut costs and also raise some capital. One way to do that is to evaluate all the assets it owns, which includes over 100 ships. Uh, it has ports. It has private islands. They'll probably hold on to those private islands. That's one way they can sort of control the, ex- the experience when they do resume sailings back uh, in the fall in the Caribbean. But in terms of ships, I think the big question is who's going to buy a big cruise ship? I mean, these are large vessels that uh, many of them have a lot of debt associated with each vessel. Um, So that's something to keep in mind. It would likely be a larger bank, a brokerage, perhaps a European uh, cruise line that would resume sailings before U.S. sailings. So that's something to watch as well. But this will definitely be something to watch uh, going forward. Or perhaps, Robert, one of one of your billionaires uh, who's uh, gained uh, significantly (laughs) in wealth this year, who wants a seriously, seriously big private yacht. I was just thinking that wealth, you know, Elon Musk at 70 billion, he could he could he could buy a carnival cruise ship and 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 ski behind it. I mean, how cool a picture would that be? He could buy one with just today's uh, share price gains. Mm. (laughs) Leslie, final word. Yeah, he'd need to make it um, electric, though. Well, you know, those cruise ships, they they burn off a lot of fuel. You need a big, a big battery for for, for one of them. Guys, thanks so much. Leslie, Robert (laughs) and Seema, pleasure. 
Uh, still to come, a former governor claims a big brokerage firm made unauthorized trades costing him tens of millions of dollars, but the firm says he's just trying to shift the blame for his own bad decisions. CNBC Investigates coming up, and as we had to break, a quick check on the markets. Fresh session highs moments ago. In fact, now, back uh, at a new high, 550 points or so on the Dow. We're up over 2%, 1.5% uh, for the S&P. The Nasdaq, we're back in a couple minutes. Welcome back. We just had a new session high, which was 560 points on the Dow. We're back to 550, nonetheless up 2.1% uh, on the Dow. CNBC has learned that the state securities regulator in New Hampshire is investigating allegations of unauthorized trading on a huge scale by at least two former brokers at Merrill Lynch. It's a story CNBC's inve- been investigating for some months now. Our Scott, Re- Scott Cohn reports the biggest alleged victim is none other than a former governor of that state. I certainly didn't sign a document and say it's okay to steal from me. And that's what you're alleging happened, that they flat out stole from you. That's right. Craig Benson is a man of many accomplishments. I stand before you today ready to serve as your next governor. Before becoming the 79th governor of New Hampshire, he co-founded a networking company in the early days of the Internet. He has an MBA and he teaches business. One thing he is not, he says, is an expert on the market. I know a balance sheet, I know an income statement, I know cash flow. I've never been a professional investor. I've always asked other people to do that for me. Benson and business partner Robert Levine founded their company, Cabletron Systems, in Levine's garage in the 1980s. I wanted a refrigerator and a freezer. Bob wanted a little bit more than that, and we thought we'd sell a few things and be done. Cabletron went public in 1989 with Merrill Lynch as underwriter, and the business took off. The computer networking systems maker was named Fortune Magazine's 1990 number one stock for return on investment. By the time Benson stepped down in 1999, Cabletron had made its founders rich with millions to invest. So they turned to their former corporate accountant, Dermot Cavanaugh, who had gone to work for Morgan Stanley. And Kavanaugh introduced them to his partner at the firm, Charles Kenahan. For a few years, things seemed to go well. But just before Christmas in 2007, Benson says he got an urgent call from Kenahan. The brokers were switching firms. We're moving to Merrill Lynch. I got to come up and see you right now, and you're going to sign all the paperwork so we can move your accounts. He says there were stacks of paperwork, most of which he didn't read. The pressure to do it was... Now, I trusted the guys to give me the paperwork, and I know I did not read them. What Benson says he didn't understand was that Kenahan and Kavanaugh's compensation at Merrill Lynch would include millions of dollars in incentives if the brokers met commission targets. It's a common practice on Wall Street, and it's legal. But what Benson alleges happened next is not legal at all. For the next 10 years, he says Kenahan and Kavanaugh churned his account, trading and trading and trading without Benson's approval, not to make him money, but to generate commissions, big commissions. Merrill Lynch made 26 million in fees to lose me five. But if I had put that money in a passbook savings account, let's say, it would have been a $50 million gain. That, Benson says, is based on a study of his accounts performed by a forensic analyst he hired. The study also says that if Benson had simply put the money into an S&P 500 index fund and left it to grow, he would have earned $100 million. 
are you trying to put the responsibility on them for things that should have been your responsibility? Scott, if I wanted to day trade my own account, I would have done it myself. I didn't need to pay $26 million to Merrill Lynch to do it. Benson's former business partner, Robert Levine, noticed the problems first. He said, Charles has taken advantage of me. You better check your portfolio. Levine filed this arbitration claim with FINRA, Wall Street's self-regulatory arm, alleging his account was relentlessly churned. All told, Levine alleged he lost more than $100 million. At first, Merrill fought back hard, saying Levine's claims had no basis. But after a hearing in front of a FINRA arbitration panel in 2018, the firm decided to settle with Levine, without admitting wrongdoing, for $40 million, the largest FINRA settlement between a firm and an individual customer in at least a decade. Now Craig Benson has filed his own FINRA claim for $100 million. If they can do it to me, who has a big account, and served as a governor of a state, who else can they do it to? Merrill Lynch declined to comment on the state investigation, but says it disagrees with Benson's arbitration claim, saying in a statement, this is a case that doesn't add up. A sophisticated, high net worth investor who claims to have been unaware of activity in their account for 11 years. Merrill did disclose that it fired the broker Charles Kenahan last year. His partner Dermot Cavanaugh has retired from the firm. Through their attorneys, both men declined to comment. But Kenahan filed a public statement with FINRA following his firing, uh, saying the transaction Actions in question were executed at the customer's direction. CNBC has learned that Merrill Lynch is still paying his legal fees. Wilf? So, Scott, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, the key line that stood out for me in, there, in that uh, piece was when you said uh, that they executed trades without his permission. So is that to say that he had a client-directed uh, account and lots of trades were going on without the phone call that, that would suggest his direction or that it was a discretionary account and meant to be long-term in nature, but was clearly much more short-term in nature than they'd let on? What he alleges is that it was a client-directed account. He was supposed to be kept apprised of the trades. He claims that did not happen. Fascinating stuff. Scott Cohn, thank you very much uh, for that. You can uh, read much more uh, about that uh, investigation on CNBC.com. Still ahead here on The Exchange, the uptick in retail trading has been mainly attributed to people being stuck in the house with too much time on their hands. But new data shows that wasn't the number one driver of activity. We're back in a couple minutes. Welcome back. We're up uh, just over 2% still on the Dow. Trading apps like Robinhood have seen a huge surge of activity during the pandemic, but more time at home is not, in fact, the top reason why people started trading, according to a new study. Kate Rooney has those details for us. Hi, Kate. Hi, Wilf. Some new research suggests it was more about bargain hunting than people having extra time on their hands. SoFi and Sentiment out with a study today about trading behavior in June. All generational cohorts from Gen Z to baby boomers saw depressed stock prices as a buying opportunity. That was the top response as to why stock trading increased. Next was extra money in people's pockets, followed by more awareness on the importance of investing. And fourth on the list at 34 percent was to replace activities that COVID restrictions had eliminated. Stimulus checks also played a role in this by putting more money in people's pockets. More than 80 percent of those polled received government stimulus. Half of them used, quote, at least a portion of that money to buy into the stock market. Researchers also say they saw respondents who gamble or bet on sports getting into the markets at a higher rate than their peers. And finally, they saw an uptick on trading on mobile devices. Wealth. 
Wow. So uh, stimulus payments going directly into stock market. Uh, I don't know what, what that kind of concludes, but I do think it's, it's interesting that this wasn't just simply a, a case of, uh, of people having more time at home and that uh, people were, were, were drawn in by cheap prices. That's right. Baby boomers, especially when you look at the differences in the generations, they actually saw more so than uh, Gen Z or millennials as this is a buying opportunity. And researchers from SoFi and Sentiment say that's likely because they've been through multiple downturns and know what to compare it to. Uh, but interesting study for sure. OK, Rooney, thanks very much. Uh, of course, uh, so far, those people will uh, be in profit, most likely, if they've uh, bought in in the last couple of months. We'll see how long uh, that lasts and how much it influences their long term behavior of uh, wanting to be in the stock market. Or not. Let's have a quick check on the markets. Last 30 seconds of the show. Uh, not far off the session highs. We got to 560 or so higher on the Dow, uh, up 2.2 uh, percent. We're up 2 percent or so at the moment, uh, 530 points, 1.4 percent for the S&P, 1.3 percent. Uh, for the Nasdaq. Uh, best sector, healthcare, followed by industrials, then consumer discretionary. All three of those up more uh, than 2%. Uh, real estate and staples at the bottom, but all 11 sectors are higher uh, on the S&P 500. Thanks so much for watching The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation or starting your dream business welcome to connie's coffee how may i help you aarp's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds that's why the younger you are the more you need aarp start planning today at aarp.org money tools